So we are, we are now on the 12th character of this Old Testament study or survey uh, that we've been doing over the last several weeks. Um, it's been a good journey, I hope, um, as we've uh, looked at all these characters that really honestly depict the character of God. Uh, we're not meant to really uh, be in awe of them and, and, uh, and their obedience to the Lord, but God's faithfulness to us, God's deliverance, God's provision, God's faithfulness, like God's love, um, that he, he, is, he is slow to anger and rich, abounding in love towards us. And, uh, and God's, the, the scriptures are meant to declare these things so that we don't lose sight. Because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm quick to forget you know, and I, and, and when, whatever we fix our eyes on, whatever we set our, our, our meditation on begins to capture our gaze and we begin to put, uh, to serve the things that we, that we, that we look at or look to. And we've got to be constantly, uh, reminded of who it is that we serve and who alone is worthy of worship and who this God is, this mighty one that is so worthy of our worship. And uh, that he's not just some idol, that he is the creator of all things, the one that sustains life, that, that keeps everything uh, moving in our, in, our, in, our, in our existence. And in the midst of all that is offering uniquely and personally into your life this redemptive plan that continues to move us to a place where we become more and more like him. That's his work. And you know what he wants from us? He wants us to, to yield to the same thing that he's about. And a lot of the pictures of the people that we've seen are just people that are submitted to God's way. The Daniels, the Shadrach, Meshachs, and the Bandigos, the Davids. You know, we see the, the points of failure, but we see these hearts that are just running after God's will, God's way. And, uh, and God uses a heart that is submitted to his will and not their own. So we're in, finally in the book of Esther, uh, towards the end of, uh, of what we know of Israel's history. Um, and, uh, before we enter into four years of, 400 years of silence and then into the new covenant. Uh, but here we are in the Persian Empire, uh, in the book of Esther. So the Babylonian Empire has fallen. The first king of Persia is a guy by the name of Cyrus I. A year into his reign, he has told the, the Jewish people they can go back home. Many of them had, didn't take him up on it because the journey was going to be arduous, painful, but most of them had established their lives, their culture, um, their businesses. And so they stayed within the Persian culture. And, uh, and, and since Nebuchadnezzar uh, went to, uh, to Jerusalem and besieged Israel and brought back the captives, the initial uh, uh, group of captives like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and even the descendants of Mordecai that we're going to talk about today, um, it has been 103 years before we turn page one of, the, of, of chapter one of uh, the book of Esther. 103 years have passed. So I, I want to navigate you, help navigate you to the book of Esther because I want you to follow along with me over the next 20 minutes or so as I kind of unpack the story for you. And then we're going to look at five to six application points that we can draw out of this particular historical narrative of the, of the, of the Jewish nation and really of God's people. And so um, I want you to follow along intently with me. So uh, let's, let's walk through the books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and then it's Ezra, Nehemiah, 
Esther, and then we have Job. Um, so we know that these aren't chronological because later on we get into some of the prophets and those prophets are intermitting between all of those different kings. Uh, we are, we're reminded that there was 19 kings in the northern kingdom, 20 in the southern kingdom, 8 in the southern kingdom that were faithful to God, none in the northern kingdom that were faithful to God. Assyria in 722 came in and completely, as God's instrument of discipline, took over the northern kingdom, which was 10 tribes of, uh, of the sons of Israel or the sons of Jacob. And so the the southern kingdom, which Babylon came in and besieged, uh, was uh, predominantly the tribe of Judah. And that's where we understand that uh, they became or came to be known as Jews because they were from Judea and it just became short, the Jews. And so we see that in the book of Esther. It's used quite often. One of the unique things about this book is it's the only book that we see that God's name is not used. Yahweh is not it's not prevalent in the book at all. We don't see sacrifice. We don't see worship. Um, and, and, it, and even prayer is vague. Uh, we see it in the form of fasting. Um, but, but, but we can relate to this Babylonian, or the, excuse me, this Persian culture because, um, is, is God's name on the, on the lips of our culture? If not used with a bad word after it? You know, like, I mean, our culture is not, um, you know, prevalently talking about the Lord. Uh, this culture was not either. And we know that a Jewish person wrote this because of the perspective. But this was a Jewish person that was, uh, some say that it was possibly Ezra who also penned Nehemiah. Um, uh, so, you know, but we don't know. But we know it was a Jewish person that lived in a Babylonian context. And so that's where we kind of pick up in the book of Esther. So hopefully through that, that journey, you've, you found the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, we would love to give you one brand new. See us after the service and we give you one. But until then, there are Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you and the, uh, underneath the chairs. Please pick that up and, and join us in the text. We're going to, Esther is 10 chapters long. We're going to look at the first nine chapters very quickly. Um, but the 10th chapter just basically, um, you know, it talks about this guy, Mordecai, who has, uh, has humbly served the Lord, sought the Lord, waited on the Lord, trusted the Lord, believed the Lord, and the Lord has exalted him. Don't we see stories throughout the scriptures, including uh, Mary's, Mary's song? We see Mary's song on the other side of the angel's promise to her, and it's this song that declares that God exalts the humble, and he brings down the proud. Do we see that? And we, we don't only really see that there. We see it in Miriam's song and Moses' song on the other side of the, the parting of the Red Sea and God delivering the people from, uh, from the, uh, the Egyptian army that was coming to uh, their demise. And, and so we see throughout the scriptures that God exalts the humble but brings down the proud. In fact, the scriptures tell us that God opposes the what? The proud and gives grace to the humble. Do you want to be opposed by God or you want him to be the one that administers grace to your life? Well, I think the scriptures are super clear that pride is in opposition of God's deliverance of grace into our life. It keeps us from submitting to his authority. One of the things we see in this, uh, this book, this wonderful book, is that God is sovereign. And what do I mean by that? That he is in control at all times, in all time. You know, one of the things, I'm reading The Knowledge of God by, um, by A.W. A. Tozer right now, and um, or The Knowledge of the Holy. I like that even better. And, and one of the things that I'm, I'm in this, uh, this omnipresence chapter, in that God is present at all time, in all time, in our... That's why he can say, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or Jesus could say, you know, as he plants his spirit in us in the new covenant, that I'll be with you to the very end of the age. It's not a superficial with you. 
It is intimate. And this is, this is our God that longs to come alongside, to invade our lives, and then to use us as his instrument, his jars of clay, his, uh, his ambassadors. But our role in that is to be submitted, is to be the yielded clay in the potter's hands so that he can fashion and form us into the very thing that he's designed and created us to be. But we have this nature that, that longs to control, longs to be in charge, longs to do it our way, and we're going to see some pictures of that in this passage, and that doesn't work out so well. So the title of this morning's message is Esther, Courage in a Complicated World. Do we live in a complicated context? Uh, do we live in a complicated political, uh, social, uh, terroristic context? Yes. And so we can, we can relate to this, um, to this segment of Israel's history because we're living out a lot of what's going on here in the, the Persian Empire at this time. Okay. Um, so J- Jerusalem was destroyed and the first exiles go to Babylon. That is in 586. That's a very important date in Israel's history because that's when Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken over by Babylon. This is when Daniel and the boys headed to, uh, to Babylon, the fiery furnace, the, the lion's den, which was later, um, happens on the other side of that. The first exiles return to Jerusalem in 538. The temple is completed in 516. And Xerxes becomes the king of Persia in, uh, in 486, which is exactly a hundred years after, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes over Jerusalem. A hundred years. He reigned for 21 years. Esther becomes queen exactly seven years later. The, the, the book actually picks up three years in chapter one, three years into Xerxes' reign. Now, if you're, if you're handling the ESV, you see, um, Adesuzer, um, that is that is the Hebrew name for King Xerxes. Xerxes is his Persian name. So if that's just, I just want to clarify that because I don't want anybody to get hung up on that. Guy by the name of Haman decrees the destruction or the annihilation of the Jews five years into Esther's reign. So in 474 uh, BC, we see that uh, that Haman, who was second in charge, he literally had the signature ring of King Xerxes. It was good. He seemed to throw that around a little bit. I don't know why. But that, that literally was the signature of a king in those days. So if you had the ring, you could place that upon the, the wax and, and that would decree and law was, was concrete. It was established and irrevocable. Um, the first feast of Purim, uh, which the word pur is a Persian word that means lots. And we're going to see that there was lots that were cast for the annihilation of the of the uh, Jewish people. And so Hitler was not by far the first one that wanted to wipe out the Jews. Um, we see that a guy by the name of Haman, who was second in charge in the Persian Empire, had the objective to wipe out, to annihilate the Jews. And let me give you a little background on this because it's really, really important. If you don't understand this background, you miss the whole context or you'll ask a lot of hard questions that aren't answered in the book of Esther. One, um, first of all, Haman is an Amalekite. Who are the Amalekites? Well, they're the people that God commanded Saul, where he was disobedient, to, to wipe out. And he wasn't faithful in that situation. Not only was he an Amalekite, but he was a descendant of the hated king Agag. So Haman is a descendant of King Agag. And so his hatred for the Jewish people is generational. Okay, so when he realizes in this in this um, story that Mordecai is a Jew, there is also there is already an entrenched prejudice that's already established there. Does that make sense? So here's one of the the big uh, application points for this particular book: um, Is there generational prejudice in our culture? Is is it destructive? 
Is it harmful? Does it, does it have place in the kingdom of God? You know, God, I mean, it's so clear. We see it in the, in the, in the New Testament that Jesus says, man, look, um, he walks into Samaria, right? All other Jews would wander almost 10 miles out of their way to avoid Samaria. Jesus walks and has a divine appointment with a young lady. Later on with a, with a, uh, with a, um, a, a leprous man. He walks into Samaria and, and heals a leprous man. Um, so we, on any level. Um, and so that's one of the things to look hard and fast at this morning in our own hearts. Is there generational prejudice? Often that stems from a, a conflict between one individual that then permeates into their entire, I mean, talk about stereotyping. <laughs> you know, like, like as if just because a person has a skin color or they're from a certain place, or a certain gender that makes everybody like that. And, uh, and we've got to be real. I mean, prejudice doesn't have a place in the kingdom of God. So Purim is first celebrated in 473, and the Persian Empire falls to Greece in 331 BC. So that's the context of where we're at in this particular story. Uh, so we understand, like in history, um, you know, what's going on and where this is at. Um, and so the Greek, the, the Greek Empire is on the precipice. In fact, the battles that transpire with King Xerxes in the context of Vashti, the first queen that gets deposed, and Queen Esther coming into her royal position, the battles that happen between those times is two battles with the nation of Greece. And one, they are victorious, and that's why we see a lot of feasting and celebration. The other one, they, they, they are destroyed. The per- this is the first step towards their fall. And that's why he starts thinking about his queen, and he's like, I don't have anybody. And then it's next thing you know, they're having all these women come from 127 provinces that are young and virgins just to cut, so that he has a, a harem to pick from. So um, the big idea for this particular message is God's divine guidance and the fact that he cares for us. I mean, that's an amazing thing that the God of the universe, the author of all life and creation, the very one that has the, has the, you know, decides what's right and wrong, that he, he, he loves us and he cares for us. God's sovereignty and power is evident throughout this book, despite difficult circumstances. So we see a lot of hardships on behalf of those that are God's people, those that are seeking to walk and follow, uh, the Lord. Um, there's some difficult circumstances. And choices that we must uh, make in uh, in the context of trusting Him and His ultimate faithfulness. Um, do do you do you face difficult times? Do you have hard choices as a believer in a culture that is completely contrary to God's word? And guys, let me say this: it's going to get worse. But here's the good news: you're going to get better. And part of that is because of the context. And that's an interesting formula that it's often the, the hardships and the trials and the testing and the adversity that literally refines us into the image of God. Nobody runs to those things, but as believers, we're called to not avoid them, but to trust God in them. Does that make sense? And to believe that, that if God is sovereign, these things have come to us on purpose, but here's the bigger idea for a purpose. And that God's, God's not ever reactive. He's intentional. Isn't that good news? That, that he's always intentional in these things. Listen, I don't pretend to understand that. I don't pretend to understand the marriage between God's sovereignty and the limited choices that we have. But the truth is, God is never out of control. Never. And everything that comes our way, God is not surprised by or confused by. 
These things have come to us for a reason. And as Charles always says, God's not doing it to you. He's doing it for you. And that's something we got to, you know, we got to rest in those things because it's so important. So there's no mention of God, as I mentioned. Worship, prayer is, is vague um, or s- sacrifice. So I, I, I mentioned that's like us, right, in our culture. Um, it seems that the author's purpose was to record the origin of the Feast of Purim, which is a festival that the Jews celebrate in our calendar in February. And uh, in their calendar, it is the, uh, it's the 12th month, the 14th and 15th day the month of Adar. And so uh and and to communicate the great deliverance of the Jewish people from Xerxes. Isn't it amazing that with all the 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 uh the, the forces of darkness cuz think about it we're you know we're instruments, right? And so are those that are used by the enemy. Like but in all of these battles where the 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 Jews have been the the ones that are targeted. Isn't it amazing? We I don't see do you guys know any Philistines? I don't know anybody from Moab. I don't know anybody. I mean, and this nation, the, the Jewish nation, uh, was established before some of these. You know, but we only see other, the only other culture we see that has endured, you know, we see Egypt. But, but the Jewish nation continues to, uh, to, uh, to endure. But, but no nation has faced the adversity that the Jewish nation has. None. And God is faithful to preserve a remnant so that he might bring the, the, the messianic message of hope and rescue to humanity and that the world may know that there's a God on the throne and that he loves us. So uh, the great deliverance of the Jewish people from King Xerxes, we see that here. Um, this guy likes to party. Um, the whole like outline, if you really break it down of this entire book, is the, the Feast of Xerxes, uh, then... Uh, then Esther has a few feasts, and then there's the Feast of Purim. So this is like a book of feasts, okay? So um, what we learn some valuable things in this. So some of the things we learn are character and courage under pressure. You ever feel pressured by the circumstances of your life? What, you know, here's the question. What do you turn to in those moments? That declares where your trust lies, where your God, who your God is. Do you lean on your own understanding? Do you, do you look to drugs, alcohol, you know, the opposite sex, or maybe something as subtle as media? Just, just, I just want to run away and be entertained. Or do you run to the Father's lap, His arms, you know, as Marty talked about last week, do you, you just fall into His lap and experience the love that He longs to lavish on us? Because that, that's, that's who we need to be. People that trust God and run to Him because He is our rock and refuge. Some other things we see in this text is divine appointments for such a time as this. That God authors these moments where we have an opportunity with the, the gifts and influences that we have to step up to the plate and not do something but trust God who does something through us. Do you know, he wants us to be these instruments that he can use for his glory. And he doesn't want to be vague about those things. When God is present but unseen, that's, that's very, very relevant to our culture. Risk it all. We see, we see Esther, uh, Hadassah is her, is her, is her, uh, her Jewish name, uh, also referred to as Esther. And we, she, she's known by this name. That Esther risks it all. She puts her life on the line. She, she says, if I perish, I perish. But I'm going to do what I believe I've been divinely appointed to do for such a time as this. 
She risked it all, doing God's will no matter the cost. If I perish, I'll perish. You know, one of the other things we see in this context, so often beauty um, can be the demise of a young lady because it draws a lot of pressure and, and, uh, and um, interest. But we see in this text, which I love, is a great example of a woman of great beauty. I mean, there's 127 provinces. And women are brought from, from and it's described in chapter 1, from India to Kush or Ethiopia. That's a pretty, I mean, this was the empire of the day. And women, young virgin women were brought from all over the empire to be, to be put in the king's harem so that he could pick one. They would spend, as the movie says, one night with the king. And he would decide if this was the one. And, and we see that, I mean, she had to be gorgeous. She had to be beautiful externally. But we get to see the beauty of her character and her love for God and her, and her respect for her cousin Mordecai. And, and we, get, we get to see this character that is just compelling in her. But you know what I love? I love that she uses her beauty for God's glory. Ladies, did you hear that? You know, 1 Peter 3, write that down. If you're a lady here, write down 1 Peter 3, and it basically tells you where should we find our beauty. Where, where does a godly woman find her, her beauty? Or write down Proverbs 31. Where does a godly woman find her beauty? And Esther didn't use her, you know, the, 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 the advantages that were given from a worldly connotation. She, she tried to leverage those for the glory of God. And so... For all of us, do we use the influence that God gives us for his glory? Man, this is such a big point. Do we use the influence? Everyone in this room has influence. Do you know that we're the wealthiest? Uh, I, I heard just recently that we represent 6% of the world's population and we consume over 32% of the world's resources. Guys, we have a great responsibility and all of us in this room, I mean, we saw Compassion International and the impact that $38 a month can have. Man, do we, do we understand that God wants to, he, he doesn't, he didn't fill the money with the Holy Spirit. He filled us with it, with him, so that he could use us. And he's given us this influence so that we can be his instruments for his glory. So we open up the Feast of, uh, of Xerxes, uh, which, by the way, he was the fifth king of Persia. Um, chapter 1 opens in 438 or 83 B.C. By the way, that's 2,499 years ago. Just so you don't think of this as a story, but a historical narrative. Three years into Xerxes' rule, uh, it has been 103 years since Nebuchadnezzar conquered the Judah, Judah and, captive, uh, and, had capt- and the captives of, uh, and took them to Babylon. It's been 54 years since the first captives returned, 33 years since the temple was built, which, by the way, just so we understand how perfect God is, um, you know, part of the reason that they're in captivity is because they didn't, they didn't, they didn't honor the Sabbath. They didn't observe the Sabbath in the way that God had prescribed. And so he sent them into captivity and he told them it was going to be for 70 years. Do you know when the temple was built based on the, 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 the captivity? Exactly 70 years is the temple reestablished. And what, 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 what do they need the temple for? In order to, to worship God the way that he had prescribed in that, in that time. 70 years later after, the, after that, the temple was, was rebuilt or completed. 25 years from the opening of this book, 
Ezra would lead, just so you know where Ezra and Nehemiah are, Ezra would lead the second group of captives into Jerusalem. And 13 years later from there, Nehemiah would complete the wall in 445 BC. So that's our context. Persia was a dominant empire. Esther was uh, in Esther's day after uh, the fall of Babylon in 539 under King uh, Cyrus. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, King Cyrus was the one that let the Jews back uh, into their native countries. Um, and many of them obviously went back, but many, many stayed. So we see that uh, Queen Vashti, or Vashti, depending on how you want to pronounce that, who was the current king of, uh, or queen of, queen, uh, of King Xerxes, um, was, um, was this beautiful woman. Um, and what was going on in that particular time was um, there was this huge celebration that King Xerxes was, sh- was, was, was having. Now, we've got to think about the pomp and circumstance of this culture. These folks would have literally like, like gems sewn into their beards. I mean, we see some of this in the movies that are displayed like 300 and other things, but, but like, like they, they, they had goblets that they would use, golden goblets that they would, uh, that they shared with everybody that came, princes and, and officials, um, and, and every, everyone was unique and different. Um, and so here it's clear that Xerxes is showing off his power, his glory, and his wealth. But what is his reasoning in doing that? Why he's doing that is he's about to go against the, the Greeks and he wants to demonstrate his power. He's kind of just, he's like a peacock throwing his feathers out, you know, going, I'm about to conquer you. But here's the, here's the unique thing. He does it for six months. He throws a party for all his officials, nobles, princes, all of the, the satraps, all of the, for six months they party. And they celebrate all the wealth and, and circumstance. And none of this is meant to point to the glory of God, but to the glory of Xerxes. After that's over, there's been a lot of people in Susa, which is the capital city of uh, Persia. There's been a lot of people that have endured all of these people and all this partying going on. So, so what does Xerxes do? He throws a week-long party for these folks. And so for a week, he basically says, you guys have worked hard. Uh, you can drink as much as you want. Drink up. And it's a whole, it's, it's all the men that are from the, the capital of Susa. When you see in your Bible citadel, that word means palace in this context. And, and this was his winter palace in the capital of Susa. And so here they are partying for the week. At the end of the week, what happens is, I mean, you can imagine they've been able to drink as much as they want. And, uh, and Xerxes has this glorious idea in a drunken stupor. Uh, around a bunch of men, let me let me parade my wife in front of you. Look how beautiful she is, and so he calls upon Vashti to come out and show herself to this 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 brood of drunken men that have been drinking for a week. And she what? She declines because that's the right thing to do, right? One of the things we find in in uh, in, in Persian history is that she was pregnant or. She actually gave birth that exact year to Artaxerxes. Interestingly enough, Esther's, Esther does not have children that, uh, that, that gain the throne through Artaxerxes. Somehow Vashti ends up, her son Artaxerxes ends up being the, the next king. But at this particular point, she says no. Well, it enrages. I mean, of course, in front of us, this is like Herod, you know, when, uh, when, uh, he's about John the Baptist's head, you know, like, he's gonna do, he's gonna try to save face. And so what happens is, um, they, you know, the, uh, Esther, or Vashti does not come, 
Um, the, he calls his wise men, what do I do? And this is in the context of this particular party. And uh, they said, look, if, if she's able to get away with this, then every man's wife will just say, well, if Vashti can do it, I can do it too. And uh, I, I don't know that I like their reasoning, but uh, that's, the, that's, their, that's their decree. And Xerxes likes it and says, uh, you know, and sends letters all over the 127 provinces, says Vashti is no longer the queen. She's been deposed. So what happens after that is, um, is they go into this military conquest of Greece. They have an incredible battle. Uh, they win. Uh, later on, uh, they have another battle with Greece, and they get, they get wiped out. And he comes back home with his tail between the legs, and he's wanting some comfort. And so what do the guys propose? Hey, we need to get you another wife. You know, you got a harem. you got concubine, but you, you need another queen. And so what they propose is let's go across the entire, from India to, to Ethiopia, and let's find another queen for you. Some, a bunch of young virgins, we'll bring them in, and, uh, and you can pick and choose. So they're brought in, they're put under the seven eunuchs so that they can't mess this up. And, uh, and so they, and they're given beauty treatments for 12 months before they have their one night with the king. And at that, at, at some point, and it says that Esther over and over again says Esther has favor, has favor. Where do you think that favor comes from? Where do you think that affinity comes from? Guys, one of the things I want to, I want to really challenge you to is, is just acknowledge, just realizing that every opportunity is, is, is God's, not, let me be clear about this. Um, every God-given opportunity, every, every, when you have favor with another individual, that is something that only God can provide. Why we like certain people and don't, uh, why they like us and don't. I mean, we've got to be really astute about that, very, very sensitive to those things, because th- I believe God's providence is wrapped up in his favor. And, uh, and so we, uh, we see that he has, he, uh, King Xerxes loves her, uh, thinks great of her, and, uh, and wants her to be his new queen. So she is, uh, she is made the new queen. And, uh, and in that time period, there's about five years that lapse, um, after Queen, the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Esther is made queen. And after she is made queen, um, there, there comes this gentleman by the name of Haman. And Haman comes to the, uh, becomes, uh, second in command and, um, and he, as I mentioned, has this hatred towards the Jews, but it's not really brought to the surface until he's given all this authority, the signet ring, and he goes out and everybody's bowing to him except Mordecai. Now, who's Mordecai? At this point, we understand that Mordecai is Esther's cousin. Um, Esther's parents have died and Mordecai has kind of been, been the father figure. He is uh, referred to some by Uncle Mordecai, but he's truly her cousin, and uh, and he plays this father figure um, in her life. Well, because because Mordecai won't bow to Haman, much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow to the to the golden statue uh, because their allegiance and their loyalty and their worship was to God and God alone. Haman gets outraged. He is told he's a Jew, and instantly says, "I'm going to wipe out all the Jews." And so he plots a plan and, and, uh, talks with King Xerxes and, uh, and basically says, look, um, I will put 375 tons of silver in the treasury to, to basically fund the annihilation of the Jews. And it seems like with, without even a consideration, Xerxes gives him his ring and says, you know what? Keep your money. Do what you want. 
And so Haman is now going to, to find whatever means he can to wipe out or annihilate this nation that he has historical and generational prejudice with. Well, what happens in that context is Mordecai is, is, you know, weeping. He's, he's horrified. He's, he's, uh, he's fasting. He's calling others to the same. And, uh, Esther finds out that, that Mordecai is, is, is upset. He's, 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 he's fasting. He's weeping aloud in the streets. Go and find out what's going on with, with, with Mordecai. Well, comes back and she finds out that this is what's going to happen. And we pick that up in verse, in chapter four. And uh, I want to see. I want to show you what his response is to Queen Esther, like what he says to her at this point. Now she's five years into her reign. She is not yet disclosed to Xerxes or anybody that she is of Jewish origin. Okay, because Mordecai told her not to, wisely enough. And so, and that was, and that was before any of this went down with Haman. So, um, but. So she's still, her heritage is still unknown to her husband of five years. And, uh, and so, um, Mordecai sends back these words that we find in chapter four, verses 13 and 14. And I'm going to read them from the screen. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai had a providential perspective on things. He understood that this was this was not something that is, was just random or, or happenstance, that she was there now on purpose as an instrument of influence. And don't you love that he says here that for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Do you know what he's, what he, where he's getting that from? He's the promises that God has made to Israel. That there will be a king on the throne and he will have an everlasting kingdom. Mordecai knows that the nation of Israel, based on God's decrees and promises, will never not exist. And that the, the Gentiles you know, will will be grafted in. And so he is declaring that to his to his uh his cousin and uh and challenging her to respond. Now what's happened is Haman has uh Haman has um decided that by casting lots that in eleven months to the day, in the twelfth month on the thirteenth day, that the that the nation of Israel is going to be annihilated. And basically he's telling all twenty seven hundred and twenty seven provinces, so everyone across the world that's Jewish is finding out that there's a day coming that is going to be to their demise. And people are given permission to do whatever it takes to take them down. So so Esther then says, well, I'm going to do what my uncle Mordecai has asked me to do. I'm going to go before the king. Now, one of the things that we find is that Esther at times hadn't even seen her husband for 30 days. And so it wasn't like, you know, they're hanging out every night. Um, you know, he's got, a, he's got a harem. He's got concubines, you know, like that kind of a mixed up culture in that way. And so here um, Esther knows that if she comes into his presence and he doesn't extend the royal scepter to her, that she could die. That's a decree. That's a law, whether he likes it or not. And so she says, if I perish, I perish. But I'm going to do the bidding that I believe the Lord has led me to do through my uncle Mordecai. Uh, so 
Oh, my cousin Mordecai. So she goes into the king's presence. Fortunately, he offers her the scepter. And he says, what can I give you up to half of my kingdom? Now, that's a pretty bold. I mean, that's not like a car in a house. You know what I mean? That's a pretty bold statement that I'm going to give you all of this. And uh, and all she asks is, if, if, if I throw a party for you and Haman, would you come? And I'll, I'll let you know what I want at that point. And he's like, sure, another party? Yeah, why not? Yeah, wine and drinking with my buddy Haman? Yeah, I'm all about that. So, so they, um, th- this party goes on. They, they come, they get served. Uh, Esther is asked, you know, what do you want? And she says, well, I really want you, I'm going to tell you tomorrow night, you know, buttering him up, getting him ready. I don't know, the Lord's providence in this. And says, come tomorrow night and I will tell you what it is that I want. Um, and so I'm going to throw another party for you and Haman. So that night, the king can't sleep. Um, but Haman has been deriving some plans during the night because his family, his wife, has told him, hey, you need to get rid of this, this Mordecai guy. So he, he decides in the morning to start building a 75-foot gallows. So, I mean, that's a seven-and-a-half-story gallows that's going to be built throughout the day before the party that night. Uh, this man is of great influence and obviously a lot of money. Chad calculated the amount he was offering for the annihilation of the Jews this morning, and in our current price for silver was $213 million that he's offering for this. So 375 tons of silver. And Xerxes says, keep it, do what you want. So he builds these gallows specifically to hang Mordecai on. Um, and, uh, and so he comes to the party that night. He's all ready to, to kind of indict, you know, and ask King Xerxes, can I put this guy on the gallows? And King Xerxes, uh, has, has, he can't sleep. And so he asked them to come in and read the historical account of the, of the kingdom. Like, so he can be, you know, reminded. And what do they end up reading? When Mordecai, and I'll tell you the story, earlier on, there was these two officials, that had plotted King Xerxes' death or assassination. And Mordecai would sit at the city gate, and he overheard this and basically got it to the king so that they would not be able to, to, uh, to pull off their, their assassination. And they were hung on gallows. They were killed. And so Mordecai, you know, at that point was honored, but to no extent. And so now this is read to King Xerxes, and so in the morning, when, 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 uh, Haman comes into the court, ready to see Mordecai killed, Haman comes in, and King, King Xerxes is the first one to talk, and he goes, hey, what should be done for a guy that the king wants to honor? Like, to really, like, honor significantly. And Mordecai, I mean, uh, Haman goes, ooh, he's talking about me. So let's, uh, let's do this right. So he should have a king's robe put on him. He should have, uh, the king's horse to ride. He should have, um, you know, he should be led by a prince all the way through town and say, hear ye, hear ye. This is, this is what happens to a man that the king desires to honor. And so he, and all this time he's thinking, this is what I'm going to get. This is going to be great. I get to figure it out for myself. And immediately the king is like, that's a great idea. I want you, Haman, to go do that for Mordecai. Can you imagine, like, can you imagine that moment, what Haman's saying, for who? For Mordecai? What? And so, can you imagine the humiliation, you know, the pride and the arrogance of this man? He had to go and robe his hated foe. 
He had to then put him on the horse. And then he was the prince that had to walk him through the town saying, Hear ye, hear ye, this is what... You You know, I mean, but he had to declare Mordecai to be the one the king would honor. We find out later in the story that that Mordecai literally takes Haman's place with greater influence, greater um, impact in the kingdom. This is the influence that God uses to protect the, the, the Jewish nation. In fact, all of the officials and princes of all the provinces are so afraid of Mordecai that they, they literally are on the side of the Jews at the end of the deal. So here he has to walk them through all of this. He has to walk Mordecai through all of that. He goes home with his tail between the legs. He's so mad. And, uh, and then what does he have to do but go to this banquet, right? Shows up for this banquet. And finally Esther says, this is what I want. Um, I want you to know that there's someone that wants to kill me. And that someone is this guy right here. But not only me, but all my people. And the king is enraged and leaves the scene. So now Haman knows that his gig is up. He knows that he's done. He knows that Esther's the only one that can spare him. And Esther happens to be sitting on a couch and he throws himself on the couch. Just then Xerxes comes in and goes, what are you doing? Are you trying to molest my wife? And throws him on the gallows that he created for Mordecai. Okay. And it says that his anger was, was subsided. When Mordecai, I mean, uh, when when Haman ends up going to his own gallows after he perceives him to be all of these things for his beloved Esther. So uh, what ensues after that is Mordecai is elevated to prominence. Um, Esther is celebrated as queen. Um, they are the the uh, they're they're literally the reversal takes place where the Jewish nation then is given like um, influence so that they can actually take out their own enemies. And when that date comes of the 12th month and the 13th day, literally um, 500 men are killed, a lot of them in Susa alone, 300 later, so a total of 800 men. And then across all 127 provinces, those that were, uh, that did not, some of them became Jewish through this, by the way. But, um, but it was about, it was, uh, it was nine months before the actual thing transpired in chapter eight, uh, we're told that they, that, that they're given all, the whole thing's reversed, and now the Jews are the ones that have the, the authority and the power to defend themselves, it says, to defend themselves. And it says across the entire, um, prov, or, or, or empire, 75,000 people died on the 13th. Uh, month of Adar. Um, and, but Esther goes back to the king and has to do the whole thing risking her life. And he, he call, he, he extends the scepter again and he says, what do you want? And she basically says, uh, we need another day here in Susa because there's still, there's still enemies among us. And he, he permits that and that's where the other 300 end up losing their life because of their opposition to God's people. And so, you know, do, do we remember that what, he, what God said to Abraham? I will curse those who curse you and I'll bless those who bless you. You know, we see God's, you know, truly God is faithful to his word, first and foremost, to him, his own glory himself, um, but also to his people. So what do we, what do we, uh, what do we learn from this, uh, this text? Uh, from this uh, this narrative of Israel's history. One, that pride comes before the fall, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, that God looks to exalt the humble. 
you know, it's said of Jesus that, um, that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came with the most humble posture. He said he did not consider equality with God, Philippians uh, 2.6, that he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but, he, but he, he, he gave himself, he made himself in human likeness, uh, being the very form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Like Jesus, and then he said, if you really want to be great, become a servant. And so we, 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 we are called to humility. In fact, it says Jesus humbled himself, and I believe it's six times that we see in Paul's letters that we're called to humble ourselves. We're called to humble ourselves. I mean, God will help us out if we're not doing a good job. You know what I mean? But So here's, here's some five points that I want you to hear, uh, and they'll be on the screen. If, if we yoke our life, our life's purpose with God's purpose, we benefit from his sovereign care. If we yoke, do you know what I'm saying when I say yoke? Like if we bind ourselves to God's sovereign purpose, and not our own, we benefit from God's sovereign care. Number two, we should extinguish any form of prejudice in our lives. Though different, we all find our genesis in the image of God. And so we've got to find, I mean, we're called to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute. We're called to bless those who curse you, bless and do not curse. We're called to love the way God loves. And let's remember, we were once his enemy, not because that was God's posture, but that was ours. Number three, God is never surprised by or confused with our circumstances. He is always able to rescue us. Amen? He is always able to rescue us. And we have to allow him to determine how, when, and where that is done. Uh, when we trust God, when we trust in God, we need not fear man. Man, so often our fear or anxiety is related to, oh, what if Hillary, what if, what if Trump, what if, what if, what if ISIS? Man, look, God is on the throne. Do you know the biggest kingdom on the planet is? The kingdom of God. That's the biggest kingdom on the planet. And you know what? It's powerful and effective. And, it's, and, it's, and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's the most powerful kingdom on the planet. And that kingdom resides in you because of God's handiwork. Rather, God's sovereign reign comforts us. So we don't fear man, but we, we, we rest. Like, what does faith do for us in the midst of adversity and political, you know, stuff going on, like it causes us, like our faith in God causes us to rest in his sovereignty, in the fact that he's never out of control. I love this. Um, just The Lord just gave this to me in the middle of, uh, um, of the preparation. It's like us plus God is the majority. Us plus God is a majority. Like like Jonah, I mean, like Joshua, like Esther, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Daniel, you know, like David, like us plus God is the majority. We must have courage and confidence in the Lord despite our circumstances. Despite our circumstances. It is not enough to simply believe that God is in control. It's, that's not enough. Our faith moves us to courage and conviction that lives what we believe. That lives what we believe. And finally... We are desperate for wisdom in a culture of unbelief. And don't you love that God's word says to us, if you lack wisdom, ask, and God gives generously without finding fault to all who ask, but you must believe so that you're not like a, a bunch of waves tossed and turned. You know, you'll be an, uh, uh, you're, 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 an, you're an un, you'll be unstable in all that you do is how it ends. 
So like we, we have to believe that God is not only the source of wisdom, but that he is the author of it and that he is the one that, that lavishly and generously wants to give it to us without finding fault. That's one thing that God will give you irrelevant of what you've done or haven't done. Like God wants to impart his wisdom because wisdom will lead to him. So we are desperate for wisdom in a culture of unbelief and we must act with humility and love standing against the tide of disobedience because that's what's going on. Our, our culture is just filled with disobedience, which is a byproduct of disbelief. Because belief, listen, our problem isn't not doing what we should do. It's not believing what, what, what God wants us to believe. Because if we believe what God wants us to believe, our actions will follow that. And so whenever we disobey, it's not, a, it's not focusing on why did I do that. It's what, what am I not believing about God and his character and his faithfulness. I've asked Trina to, to close our time together to come and read this poem. And I, I, want, you to, I want you to understand that this is a fictional piece uh, that was done by, um, by J- John Piper by John Piper, and, um, and it's, uh, the narrative is uh, supposedly um, Esther has a child, and his name is given to him as the namesake of her father, which we have in the text. And, uh, and so she's sitting by a campfire and sharing in retrospect what has transpired over her life. And so we get the recap of the book of Esther. At 35, her hair was fine and cinder black, nor was there sign of aging in her 